Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Help me sustain my voice. You know my weaknesses. So help all of us, Lord. We all need your help here. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, it was October 2nd, 2006, when Charles Roberts, Charles Roberts, he entered an, uh, an Amish school. He had a plan, an evil, diabolic plan to abuse and kill little girls. He ended up killing five girls and injuring other five. The girls were between the age of 6 to 13. That took place in Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. That was 2006. And it became famous, this case, not only because of the evilness of the, the murder, but because, if you remember, the Amish community made public, they stood public and, and declared that they were forgiving Charles Roberts for murdering those kids and became so popular that there is a book about that and it and was so moving, so emotional. Right? You have all these Amish parents together, the whole community declaring that they were forgiving Charles Roberts. And you remember that Roberts, after killing the girls, he killed himself. He shot himself. Uh, so the question is, is it biblical? Is it biblical for this whole community to forgive a murder, an unrepentant murder? Can we forgive dead people? You see, the question is not whether it's moving. There are many things that are moving and emotional. The question is, is it biblical? Is it right? What's fascinating about the Amish community is that they practice Conditional forgiveness. They believe that there is a hell, therefore God does not forgive everyone. And they also, in the Amish community, if you sin and you're unrepentant, you cannot stay in the community. Those are interesting things to think about. And why are they going and just forgiving this unrepentant murder? So that's one case. Second case. Another story. September 6, 2018, that's when the Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger, she entered the wrong apartment. If you remember, she lived in, on the third floor, she went to the fourth floor. And she opened the door, and she thought the, the man in her room was invading her place. The name of the man who she killed was Bothan Jian. Botham Jian, and she murdered that man, believing that she had entered her own apartment. Uh, during her trial, in profound tears, Geiger says, I'm so sorry. I feel like a terrible person. I hate that I have to live with this the rest of my life. I have asked God for forgiveness. I feel that I don't deserve a chance to live with my family and friends. I never wanted to take an innocent person's life. Bothan's brother, his name was Brandit, Brandit Jean. He spoke during the trial. And he said these words to Geiger. I hope you go to God 
with all the guilt and all the bad things that you have done in the past. If you're truly sorry, I speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. I'm speaking for myself, not for my family. I love you. And I'm not going to say, I hope that you rot and die just like my other brother did. But I want the best for you. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. And then he asked the judge if he can go and give her a hug. And they hug each other and cry. There is a difference. There is a major difference here. And that's what we are studying. When are we called to grant forgiveness? When are we called to bestow forgiveness on one another? And we are going to continue moving. We saw the first question, when does God forgive the sinner? And now we are walking through the second question, when must we forgive one another? And we, we saw first, when does God forgive the sinner? That's crucial because we are called to forgive as God forgave us. So we must have God's standard, His way of forgiving. And we saw how God always forgives when there is repentance. There's not a single person in heaven who has not repented and confessed his sins. Amen? Faith and repentance, there are two sides of the same coin. And we see how God He first forgives us. You think about the initial forgiveness or the judicial forgiveness. The first time we believe and repent, He forgives us. That's one aspect. But with the rest of our lives, or our, our continual forgiveness, we must keep asking God to forgive us as we repent. And then He forgives us. So we see how God's forgiveness is conditional. There is a conditional aspect of God's forgiveness. He forgives those who repent. You don't find any case in the Bible where God forgives unrepentant people. That will destroy His justice, His righteousness. So we saw that first, and now we move to the second part. When must we forgive one another? Paul says, be kind to one another, tender heart, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the first thing we know is that God is, He has conditionality in forgiving. So that's going to be applied into our lives also. And that sometimes is strange and, and, and shocking for most of us because we never heard that. But that's the biblical pattern. That's the biblical teaching. So in our last Lord's Day, we saw when to confront a brother, when to ask for forgiveness. And then we saw when to overlook an offense. I'm not going to go through all those things again. And then we start walking through Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, when we are called to grant forgiveness, when we are supposed to forgive one another. And that's where we are right now, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. You can look in your Bibles. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And it says, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What does it mean to listen to you? When he says, if your brother listens to you, what does it mean? He responds in repentance. Amen? To listen here is the understanding of taking to heart and realizing that he has sinned against God and against his brother or sister in Christ. 
This listening here is not just, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. Oh, I hear you. No, it, it's taking to heart and, and truly receiving that word and, and humbling yourself and crying out for God's forgiveness and the brother's forgiveness. It's very similar to Matthew chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he, if he repents, forgive him. So repentance is vital in the doctrine of forgiveness. We, we have been talking about forgiveness for so much in modern church without talking about repentance. We talk about forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. You need to forgive. You've got to be forgiving. But we never talk about the other aspect of forgiveness. That's repentance. Forgiveness and repentance walk together. It's a transaction. It's like trying to shake someone's hand and the other person doesn't give your, his hand. You can't shake the person's hand. To forgive is to perform a transaction. And it requires the repentance of the other party. That's why we saw that sometimes you're not going to be able to do that transaction, so you just cover with blankets of love. If that's not going to harm, it's not going to destroy the relationship, blaspheme the name of the Lord. So repentance is fundamental, crucial, when it comes to forgiveness. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, says that repentance is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without repentance. That's the biblical teaching. And what is fascinating is that I have heard people saying that you cannot expect repentance to forgive. You cannot expect repentance. And some people go even further and say, who are you to examine fruits of repentance? First, you're not expect, to expect repentance. And second, who are you to judge if there are fruits of repentance in that person's life. I'm sorry, but biblically speaking, we are commanded to examine fruits of repentance. And let me, let me just illustrate that by giving you two cases here. The first one, let's think about David. He professes to be a Christian. He works for George. George is a Christian also. David is at work. And he's spending a lot of time on social media, playing games on the computer when he was supposed to be working. George realized that, comes to him and says, David, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. You're stealing. You're robbing my time, my money. You're not working diligently. David says, oh, I'm so sorry, George. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Next day, there is David once again, playing games. George comes to him once again. David, you can't be doing that work. It's work. You're stealing my money. You're stealing time. You're robbing us here. Oh, George, I'm so sorry. It's not going to happen again. That was in the morning. In the evening, there is David once again. On social media, spending time, not on his break, but during work time, George comes to him once again. David, we talk about that. He just keeps repeating that. Oh, I'm so sorry, George. That's not going to happen. I promise you, that's not going to happen again. Next day, their work, 
George sees, notice once again, David is there. George comes to David. David, are you kidding me? And David says, you said you forgave me. The Bible tells me, tells us that you must forgive 70 times 7. You need to forget, forgive and forget. George, why are you bringing it up again? What is George supposed to do? What is George supposed to do? Is he supposed to examine the fruits of repentance, the heart of that person, to see if it's showing change, humility? Or is he just supposed to blindly forgive and forget and not see any fruit of repentance? That's one case. Here's the second case. We have Rebecca. And Rebecca is a Christian who had a traumatic childhood. She struggles with anger. She's married. She has kids. Early in the morning, one day, she yells at the kids. And as soon as the words come out of her mouth, she's devastated. She calls the children. She says, please forgive me. I sin against God. I sin against you. I should not have spoken like that towards you. Anger is a sin. I struggle and I'm trying to put you to death. Please forgive me. Later in the evening, she's driving the kids. Coming back home, the traffic's horrible. And she just yells at the people driving. You bunch of foolish people, get out of my way. Burst in anger. And as soon as she says that, she... Oh, kids, please. Please do not imitate mommy. I sin against the Lord. I sin against you. That was a sinful outburst of anger. Please forgive me. I don't want to do that. The next day, there's an argument between her and her husband. The kid's here. At night, she calls the family together. She says, you all know how much I hate the anger that I have, how much I want to put this to death. It hurts me because I'm sinning against my Lord, my Savior. I don't want to do that. I want you guys to help me. I need you to pray for me. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I'm crying out, please forgive me. What are the family supposed to do? Right there you see how we judge fruits of repentance. We judge fruits of repentance. And we are called to do that. We are called. We are not omniscient. But ordinarily we can and we must look at lives and see what's taking place. If there is, because there is false repentance. There is true and false repentance. And God has given us the ability, yes we are not omniscient, but to examine whether there is repentance. That's why Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive. So you can see the repentance to grant forgiveness. You can see if someone listened to the rebuke. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, we hear John the baptizer saying, and he's exhorting the crowds, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Or Paul says that he declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, 
and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. What? Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Fruits and deeds are synonyms. Fruits you can see, amen? You can see a fruit, you can taste a fruit. You look at a banana, you can see the banana, you can taste the banana. The same with repentance. You can see, you can taste, you can smell that there is repentance there. What is repentance? The basic idea behind the word to repent is to turn away, meaning you're turning away from the evil, the sinful lifestyle, and you're turning to God. That's the the major idea. It's a change. The New Testament has this change of mind. The Old Testament is this turning away, where you're going away, now you turn and you're going a different way. Repentance affects the inside and the outside, the affections and the actions, the heart and the behavior. And it's visible. Repentance is not just feeling remorse. It's demonstrated through actions. Amen? We need to understand that. There, there is a, an aspect where we, we can see fruit of repentance. We've got to be careful to not create our own standards of repentance. Oh, unless you have ten tears coming out of your eyeball, that's not true repentance. No. We've we got to be careful to not have our own sinful standards but there is a, a, a pattern of life where you can see brokenness, humility, and a longing for forgiveness because the person realized that he has sinned against God and against a brother or sister. Amen? And the great promise of the new covenant, think about the new covenant. The great promise was that the Spirit would be with His people, God's people, changing their hearts so that they may repent. They may be a repenting community. A community of people who were always repenting of their sins. Amen? That was the great hope of the new covenant. The new community. And we talk about repentance. There's another aspect of repentance that's kind of inseparable. Is the confession of sin. When you repent, you confess your sins. There's this aspect of repenting and confessing your sins. And confession is the opposite of deflection. Right? You have confession and then you have deflection. What is deflection? When you blame other people. Confession. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, they're all blaming one another. Blaming others. That's deflecting. Confessing is no, you you agree. So we saw in our studies, we saw how in the day of atonement, Aaron, the high priest, had to confess their sins. In Nehemiah 9, 2, you hear of the people of God confessing their sins. In Matthew 3, 6, we read about confessing their sins and being baptized. In Psalm 32, 5, David confessed his sins and he was forgiven. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. Amen? So there is this aspect of confessing our sins. And the word to confess, especially in the New Testament, homo, homo, the same you have the prefix there, homo, and then you have the logel, to speak. It's to speak the same thing. Meaning, you agree with God, you're speaking the same language as God is speaking. That's sinful. That's sin. And I need to stop with that. That's the idea of confession of sin. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, or blaming. So much of 
sins in our society, they're all blamed on, on social, educational, familial, financial problems, mental problems. Everything is an excuse for sin, right? So in, instead of confessing sins, we've we, we got to blame something else. Francois Moller, he says, to minimize sin by calling it a weakness or a psychological problem is to underestimate what happened on the cross and to show no understanding of the severity of the price paid. In confessing sin, it must be called what God call it, calls it, and that is sin. And we, here's a pastoral application for us. In our times of prayer, sometimes, often we have confessing sins. And when whoever is praying that on our behalf, you say, please, God, forgive us. That's something I have been noticing. We don't say that in our prayer time. Please forgive us for doing that. We have sin against you and sin against one another. So sometimes we come to the confession of sins and we say, oh, Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Help us to not do that. No, we have sin against you. The same with when you talk to one another and you sin against one. I have sin against you. I have sin against God. Remember, we saw so much today is I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What is I'm sorry? But just so how you feel. I have sin is what you did against God and against the other person. Amen? So, when there is true repentance, when there is repentance, confession, a turning away to Christ, forgiveness is granted. Forgiveness is given, bestowed upon the person. Amen? Amen? Amen. But then what happens if the person does not repent? What happens if the person refuses to repent? That's what we see now in verse 16. Look at verse 16. But... If he does not listen, here's another conditional sentence. But if he does not listen, and what is to listen? To repent. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Huh. Now the circle grows. Remember, it was just a very small circle, just you and that person. And now the circle grows a little bit longer, a little bit bigger. Includes other people. And remember, the goal here is for reconciliation. The goal when you're going to that person is to have that person being reconciled with God and with you. Amen? So it says, if he refuses to repent, to listen, you take one or two along with you. And now Jesus is drawing from Deuteronomy 19.15, where there was... A law, and now Jesus is applying a principle for us. We bring other people to the case. And they're going to witness the seriousness of the situation. The one or two that are coming, brothers and sisters, they're not coming to support you. Okay? That's, that's the thing. They're not coming to support you. If they saw the scene, if they were present, if they are observers of what happened, they're going to come to testify what they saw on God's behalf. Remember that you're not bringing, on your, bringing people on your side. That's very important. These other people who are coming is not so they can be on your side. You're coming them to help in the process. 
uh, Noland, John Noland, in, the, in his commentary, he says, the presence of the supporting parties ensures that the initiative is not a confused one based on a misunderstanding, but it's also concerned to enhance in the eyes of the one being approached the seriousness of what is at stake. So they're coming to help in the process of reconciliation. Your job is not to persuade the two that that person is wrong and that you are right. That's what we see happening so often. People go to the one or two and tell all their situation and, and, and paint their side. And now here, now you, you, you come to my side here. That's not the purpose. I remember somebody saying, give us some time and we'll find people. We'll find people to be on our side. Meaning, give us some time so we can make people's minds to be on our side. It's like, what is that? that? That's not the purpose here. The goal is to have the most mature and wisest Christians from the church along with you. That's why usually you're going to call leaders of the church to come with you because they're sober-minded. They're not coming to take partiality here. They're coming to help, to see what's taking place, analyze. And sometimes these two that are coming might tell you, actually, I don't see this so seriousness here. Maybe you could just drop the case. And you need to listen to that. So he says, <coughs> if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Another conditional sentence, and you see how it starts growing the circle. It was very small, it grew a little bit, and now it's much larger. The whole church is involved here. And there is a holy movement, adding more Christians to the situation to avoid the sin to spread throughout the body. Uh, think about when you are sick. You try on your own healing your sickness, amen? You have your medicines at home, you have your own drugs there and you try it doesn't work what do you do you go to the doctor and then the doctor you try with some antibiotics a shot here a shot there and what happens it just keeps aggravating comes the moment of surgery and needs to be removed and then you need a whole medical team to come and remove that that's what we see taking place here the whole church is involved because the whole church has authority to deal with the situation. And remember, Jesus talked about to a local church. Amen? That's a local church. It's not the universal church. Nobody in the universal church has power or authority to excommunicate someone. That's why the local church is so crucial. The, Christian's li the Christian life is lived in the context of a local church. That's one of those texts that you bring to people who say, I don't believe in, in membership, in, in commitment to the local church. Like, so how do you deal with that? Because if he refused to listen, look at that, even to the church, look at how he increases. Now he stopped listening to one, he stopped listening to the two, and now he doesn't listen to the whole body. And if he refused to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Notice that Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, if he does not listen to you, to the other two, and to the church, just forgive and forget. Do you see? Does Jesus say that? And if he refused to listen even to the church, oh, just forgive him, that's okay. Is that what's written there? What does Jesus say? And if you have a, a red letter Bible, you know. All right, what does Jesus say? <laughs> and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those are Jesus' words. That's why people create an idol of Jesus. And when they come to text like that, they, they can't swallow. Because they have an idol who is not God. And when he says, let him be to you, it's interesting that he doesn't use the you plural, but the you singular. Do you know why? Because he's talking to each individual of the local church. The decision was taken, was made as a body, and now each one of you must live according to that decision. Because we know what happens, and I have seen that happening often, is we have a case of excommunication, church discipline. There are some people, you know what they do? Keep hanging out, having coffee, having dinner with that person. What church discipline is that? Oh, I know the church was mean, but I'm not mean. I'm not mean. I'm gracious. The person is asking to hang out with me. I need to hang out with her. And Jesus says, each one of you now live, abide by the decision of the body. The body made the decision. And he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I like what Grant Osborne says. He writes, he says, Christ here is talking about excommunication, total ostracism and expulsion from the community. This likely means to treat such a, such a person as an unbeliever, someone outside the community. There is no forgiveness. If he refuses to listen, if he refuses to repentance, what happens? Forgive him. Excommunicate that person. Oh, a spirit of forgiveness, a forgiving attitude. Amen. When that person repents, hallelujah, we will embrace you back eagerly, joyfully. But until then, we cannot. Otherwise, we pervert the gospel. So we see in this verse, verse 17, the mercy and the grace of God. It becomes a public teaching. It's a public teaching to the whole church. The whole church can see what happens with the one who refuses to repent. He does not receive forgiveness. The church is simply declaring what that person revealed himself to be. An unrepentant person. That's what we are doing. He's behaving like the world. Unbelievers don't repent. Amen? Unbelievers don't repent. This person is unwilling to repent... Therefore, he behaves as an unbeliever. And we're going to treat you as such. That's the process. Doriani, he says, Excommunication also protects the flock of God. Lest professing believers lead the naive astray. 
Christians inevitably associate with sinners as they work and evangelize. But disciples must not associate with so-called brothers who remain sin. If someone chooses actions or acts that define himself as an outsider, the church should treat him accordingly. With excommunication, there is yet hope of reconciliation through a fresh encounter with the gospel. So Jesus' words, if he does not repent, what? He can't forgive. You cannot forgive. We must have a forgiving attitude, a forgiving disposition, but we cannot grant forgiveness to the unrepentant. And look at now the great promise with withholding forgiveness. Verses 18 and 19. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be given, will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And this language of binding and loosing was first used in Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Chapter 16. And that's the first time that we see this use of binding and loosing. And it's actually related to Peter. As Jesus is giving the keys. Key is a symbol of authority. And with this authority comes the power to bind and loose. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, verses 18 and 19, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That was first used with Peter. And you know that Peter, as the first spokesman of the church, he used that in the early church. That you see that in the first chapters of Acts. But now Jesus is saying that's not just Peter's. That's the whole church. The whole church has authority. The authority is given to the whole body, the local church, to bind and loose. The binding, what is binding and loosing? There are two ways of seeing that. The binding could say a declaration that the person is bound in his sins. We are declaring that he's bound in his sins. Therefore, there is no forgiveness. And then that he's loose. He's loose from his sins. He's released. He receives forgiveness. Or it could be bound that he's bound to the church because of repentance. And he's loose from the church because of unrepentance. I think the first one is the more appropriate. He's bound. What are you bound? We are, he's bound to his sins. We are declaring that. We... And that's something sometimes we, we, we cannot believe that Jesus would be teaching the church that, oh, Jesus, the meek and sweet Jesus, gentle and gracious Jesus, saying that the church has the power to withhold forgiveness from people. That's blasphemy. But it's right here, brothers. And that's not the only passage. Look in chapter jo uh, John chapter 20. You can go there, John chapter 20. Verses 22 and 23. I love to listen to the sound of the pages of the Bible turning. That's so good. Look at verses 22 and 23. 
after his resurrection. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Here's the new community, the new temple. Forgiveness before was found in the temple. Here's the church, the new temple, where forgiveness is found. And he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are what? Forgiven. And if you what? Withhold forgiveness from any, it is what? You see that Jesus doesn't say, and if you withhold forgiveness, you are in sin. Who dare you? Withhold forgiveness. He doesn't say that. He actually says, if you withhold forgiveness, it is what? <coughs> withheld. That's the type of passage that we don't read, we don't like. <coughs> it doesn't match our understanding of who Jesus is. But it's right here. And you see that flows throughout the scriptures. Uh, James Hamilton, he says about this text, the giving and withholding of forgiveness in John 20, 23 is another way of describing the binding and loosing on earth and in heaven in Matthew 16, 19. What does it mean? It means that the church has the authority to assure those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ that their sins are forgiven. And the church has authority to say that those who do not repent and believe that they are not part of the church and have no reason to think that their sins have been forgiven. The church has the ability to assure those who believe Jesus and repent of sin that they are indwelt by the Spirit and thus part of the temple of God. Likewise, the church warns those who do not repent and believe that they are not part of the temple, have not the Spirit, and are without God in the world. Sometimes we, we go to another extreme because we got so scared of the Roman Catholic Church and the power of the church and the Roman Catholic teaching they go to another extreme where we deny the truth of the scriptures and the power, the authority that Christ has given to the local church. And we cannot do that. We cannot do that. It's always wrong to go to extremes. Like, every time there is, people want to run away. So, oh, the Roman Catholic, all that power for the church. And then you want to run away where the local church has no power. That's not biblical. Christ has given power to the local church. And we follow after his step. The church, the local church, is an embassy of heaven on earth. As an embassy, we follow the rules and the laws of heaven. Isn't that true? You go to an embassy, and the rules there are the rules of the country that they're representing. The same with the local church. And you think about Jesus, our king, while he was on earth... There were times when he said, your sins are forgiven. And there were times when he said, your guilt remains. He forgave and withhold forgiveness. And we follow his steps. He's leading us. He's teaching us to do that. Amen? Verse 19 says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And so many Christians take this text out of context as if it was a blind promise of God for any person who gets another person to agree with what he wants. It's like Elizabeth wants a new car. 
So she comes to Annette and says, Annette, I really need a new car. And Annette says, yes, I agree with you. You need a new car. And they go and they talk to another one. They talk to Lourdes. And Lourdes says, yes, I agree. You need a new car. Oh, do you see? Two or three agreed on earth that I need a new car. Jesus is going to give me a new car. People do do that with this text. I have seen people doing that with this text. Look at the context. And it says, And I say to you, if two of you agree on on earth about anything, the anything there, the pragma, it's better understood in this context as a, a matter, a judicial matter. D. Carson is the one who argues for a judicial, any judicial matter that the church is dealing with. The agreement on earth is about withholding forgiveness from unrepentant people who profess to be Christians. That's the anything here. This anything is a matter of withholding forgiveness. If the church, the two or three who went and now brought to the church, and we all agree, it's done. And the language here, it's already, it's already bound in heaven. We're just following what's taking place in heaven. That's why sometimes people say, oh, but why are you going to excommunicate that person? That person already left the church. That person will not care about being excommunicated. No, we need to do what God commands us, and we need to perform what's already in heaven. It's an obligation of ours. Oh, this day and age, nobody cares about church discipline. Nobody cares about excommunication. The other church is going to accept that person anyways, so why do it? Because we need to be obedient to the word of God. And you see that the the whole church has authority here. He's talking to the local church. All the members of the church have the authority. Do you see any text here saying, call the pastors and the elders and let them decide what to do? Who decides? The church. Christ gave the authority to their body. Amen? Amen. The whole church. Local churches have the authority to guard the gospel by overseeing one another's lives. The pastors are called to equip the saints, the members of the church, to do the work of the ministry. We equip the saints to do the work. The authority belongs to the church, not to a small group of men in the body who makes decisions without the body. The whole body receives the authority of Christ. And when the whole body is well taught, well equipped, they're going to do what God commands them to do. Amen? So, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul commands the whole church to expel the immoral member, the member who is in sin. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul commands the whole church to forgive and receive the one who has repented of his sins. Well, that's why it's so fundamental for you to be in a body, to be a member of a local church. And that's why in this church we, we care for the members. We are concerned about who are the members because we know that the church has authority. That's why not anybody who shows up be, has, is a member. Can you imagine that? And then it's time to make decisions, powerful decisions. Christ glorified decisions. And you don't even know what the person believes about Christ and the gospel. And 
That's why membership is so vital. Because Christ has given the authority to the members of the church. And the pastors are members. We're all members of the church. We, we have the authority. Amen? So, we're going to talk more about that in the next series of sermons. But it's good to see it's right before our eyes, this fact. And look at verses, again, 19 and 20. The great promise that we have here. Jesus says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. How often have you heard this text out of context? I like what David Turner says. He says, The flippant or superficial way in which verses 19 and 20 are often cited to assure small meetings of Christians that God is with them is disturbing because it twists a solemn passage into a cliché. No doubt God is present with any legitimate meeting of His people, whatever its size, and there is no need to mishandle Scripture to prove it. Taking this solemn passage out of context cheapens it and profanes the sacred duty of the church to maintain the harmony of its, of its in interpersonal relationships. There is absolutely nothing about small prayer meetings here. And how often you hear people quoting this passage, we are all gathered together, oh Lord, because you promised where two or three are gathered, there you are. And they are quoting this text. But this text is not, is not saying anything about prayer meeting. What is the context of the text? And especially withholding forgiveness. It's a special promise. It's a beautiful and powerful promise to the churches that practice conditional forgiveness that the Lord will be there to empower, protect, guide, and guard the local church. When we faithfully, graciously, truthfully, mercifully withhold forgiveness in order to promote the holiness of the church, Jesus promises His presence with us. That's all we see here. He guarantees that He is with us. He is with the church. When that church does what is unpopular, uncomfortable, excruciating, that painful obligation of excommunicate someone. Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with that church that takes the pain to do what is not popular, what is not comfortable, and what is hard. I give my pledge, I'm there with that church. That church has my presence. Why? Because they prize holiness and I'm the Holy One. So let us be careful in using text out of context. Amen? They can cheapen it and just pervert a beautiful text that we have here. So to finish, we need to wrap up here. My concluding thoughts about the when. When, when to forgive, when to withhold forgiveness, when to overlook. Honestly, most often, most often, most, most frequently, we will be able to cover, cover each other's offenses. Amen? With blankets of love. So often, so often, we'll be able to overlook an offense. Because we know what's going on in the other person's life. There is much love, and with much love, there is much covering. Amen? I praise the Lord for how 
my wife and children cover me. And I bet that you praise the Lord for how your spouse or your kids cover you. And do not just always publicly exposing your sins and, and failures, right? Because we must walk with suitcases of blankets. Amen? Suitcases of blankets, always helping one another. And there will be situations, brothers and sisters, you know that. There will be situations when you're going to approach that brother and sister, and that's most frequently true. You know, it's Carson comes to me and says, Hey, Google, the, the way you talked to me last week was, was harsh. I thought that you had no love the way you talked to me. And honestly, right there, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Carson, that I, I should not talk to you like that. Most cases are going to be like that also. The one-on-one is going to be, because there's so much love, unity, humility. Most cases are either covering or on the one-on-one is going to be just like, oh, please forgive me. Isn't that true? And there will be the rare cases. There will be the rare situations when we must withhold forgiveness because of the lack of repentance. Those are rare. Those are rare. But there are situations when we must withhold because the sin was heinous, the sin was ugly, and there was no lack of repentance. To grant forgiveness to an unrepentant person, one who is unwilling to forsake his sinful life, is a perversion of the gospel. To bestow forgiveness when there is no repentance is to make yourself wiser and more righteous and more loving than the triune God. When you believe that you can forgive no matter what, without repentance, when there is a sin, you are showing yourself to be holier, more merciful, and more righteous than God himself. To bestow forgiveness upon the one who did not repent is often a demonstration of self-love. For you love yourself more than that person who needs to be confronted and repent. And it's fascinating as you... I, I have been reading so much and listening to a lot of sermons on forgiveness by different preachers. And Mark Driscoll, a popular preacher, Mark Driscoll, he says that the conditional forgiveness, what we see here in the scriptures, it's a doctrine of demons. He says in one sermon, that's a doctrine of demon, conditional forgiveness. They need to wait for somebody to repent, to forgive. Vody Bachman, and most of you love, appreciate. He says that conditional forgiveness is a myth. It's a myth. That you don't need repentance. So you start seeing how it's broad. But brothers and sisters, it's just so clear. It's so clear in the scriptures. I I like what Chris Browns in his book, uh, Unpacking Forgiveness, he says... He, he takes us back to David and Goliath. And he says, think about David and Goliath. David doesn't cross the armies and go and face Goliath and says, Goliath, you have made a lot of people upset there. Or we just choose to forgive you no matter what. No. David kills him, and what does he do afterwards? 
He beheads him. And he drags that head. You can just picture the color of the head out of the body. Once it starts changing colors. The heat, the time. And he's dragging that head all over the place. That's not a cute picture. That's not you teach the, the football team that they can face the stronger football team and they're going to win because that's a giant. Or teaching little kids, hey, there's a giant that you can... No, 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 no. There's a powerful lesson that God does not forgive all. And if you go, Goliath had repented, fallen on his knees before the fight and said, I surrender myself to the God of Israel. He'd not have lost his head. And so many churches, so many families, so many relationships are broken and miserable because they have been insisting on this unconditional forgiveness. That you just need to forgive and forget, no matter what. And the relationship is never restored. You know why? Because you're not following God's pattern. So many marriages. People kept this idea of just forgiving. Forgiving when there is no biblical pattern of Hey, there is a sin. We need to deal with this sin. Churches, so many churches. Oh, we just need to forgive and forget. And then you see how messy, how nasty it is because they did not follow the biblical pattern. So as we walk the narrow path in obedience to the word of God, as we walk with hearts ready to forgive, as we walk in love and holiness, the Lord promises the greatest promise of all, that he is with us. I don't care who else is with us. As long as the Lord is with us. Amen? And that's all he promises. I'll be with the church that's faithful. That does the hard, the, un the, the unpopular, the, the uncomfortable thing. I'll be there with them. There is no greater promise than having Jesus' smiling face upon us. Amen? And the, the hymn we're going to be singing next is Trust and Obey. Trust and Obey. Trust implying we are relying on His wisdom, on His goodness, even when it's hard for us. So many things it's hard, but we need to trust His goodness. We need to trust His wisdom. Amen? And when it comes to forgiveness, that's a vital aspect. There are times that we feel like not forgiving. Isn't that true? How often we feel like not forgiving the person. But we must forgive because there was repentance. And it doesn't matter what we feel. We need to trust God's promise and His wisdom. And there are times when we feel like forgiving. I just want to forgive so we can recover the relationship. But you can't. Because if you forgive like that, you're perverting the gospel. There was no repentance. And that person will continue going to hell. That's so important to trust. Trust in God's wisdom. And then we obey His wisdom. Trust and obey. The first verse says, When we walk with the Lord, put here, When we walk with the Lord in the light of His word, what a glory He sheds our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey. That's exactly what we see here in Matthew 18. His promise. As you are obedient to my commandments, I am with you. Amen. Father, we...
We thank you. We thank you for your, who you are, what you have done. Some of this teaching is hard for us to swallow and embrace. And I pray that whatever is man-made would fall apart. Whatever I said here that's not in accordance with sound teaching that you'd remove. But whatever was taught faithfully here, Lord, I pray that would penetrate our hearts and change us. We want to imitate you, Lord. We don't want to just what feels better for us, what uh, sounds nicer. We want to do what you call us to do, Lord. So help us. For those here who need to repent, I pray they would touch their hearts, cause them to run to you. You are a forgiving God. Your arms are always open to receive the sinner who repents. And there is no, no better place to be than in your arms, Lord. And help us. Help us to be a church who is always eager and ready to forgive, but never willing to compromise this hard doctrine of withholding forgiveness when there is no repentance, Lord. Because we want to honor you and glorify you. So help us. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.